joining me, Nick, and Brendan for episode 17 of the Rugby Paper Podcast is a two-time British Lion. Here to discuss the precarious state of the grassroots game is one of England's greatest ever flankers and current director of rugby at Isha, Peter Winterbottom. Nick, Brendan, it's great to have you back with me. Thank you for joining. And Peter Winterbottom, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Yes, very happy to be on the uh, on the show. Congratulations are in order. You're director of rugby at Isha. It's your was this your second season? Obviously, you've been there three years, but the pandemic in the middle. Yeah, it was the, se- the second uh, playing season. Yeah, so third season in, in all. But obviously, we missed uh, missed out on the, uh, the the season in the middle. For those who don't know, Isha this this year secured promotion to Nat One, which is two divisions below uh, the English Premiership. So huge congratulations to, for that. We'll get to that in a second. A flanker yourself, one of England's greatest of all time, if I may say. Now, whenever we have an English guest on, I've got in the habit of slightly putting them on the spot and asking what their first choice England unit is based on where they're playing. So back rower yourself, I want to put you on the spot and say, what is your first choice England back row right now? Well, uh, the, the two two positions that I would say should be nailed on are um, Tom Curry at, uh, at seven. And, and I would I would go for Don Brandt at eight. And six is sort of open for anybody else to, to decide because I, I'm I'm not hundred percent sure who, who we should play at six. I mean I don't I don't believe Laws should be at six, although he does a job there. But certainly Curry and and, and Don Brandt, I think he needs he needs a run. It's interesting that you say the Laws thing. We we picked a an England fifteen a few episodes back for twenty twenty three. Not one of us had Laws at six. We were unanimous that Laws is a second row and not a six. Jack Willis has come back into the fold. One thing that I've been sort of touting for is that Jack Willis is your seven and then you move Tom Curry to six. Tom Curry, he's beefed up up a bit. We said on the podcast he's maybe lost a little bit of speed and can't move around the park like a prime Tom Curry seven normally would. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think that um, Tom should be, as far as I'm concerned, he is a, he is a seven and, um, you know, he is, he's world class, but he's got to stick to seven. I mean, Eddie moved him to eight for a couple of years ago and and I couldn't see the point of that um yeah you know it, and and he shouldn't be allowed to to beef up and slow down I mean he you know if you look at someone like Richie McCaw's career you know he never he's never slowed down he never beefed up and I don't think Tom should do that either I think he's got to look at himself as saying I'm a number seven and I've got to do a seven's job and I, I don't see the upside of moving him to, to six at all Nick you you said yes you agree with that I do. <clears throat> I certainly agree with Wince that he's got to stay uh, up to speed in the way that, that McCaw did. I'm very, very keen on Jack Willis. You know, since he's come back, he's just slotted into that ability at the turnover uh, that's so crucial in the in the game at the moment. And you look at, at France and where they've got people who can turn the ball over in almost every position on the field. Well, England have been nowhere near as good in that area. Willis brings that X factor at the turnover. You know, I mean, he's brilliant there. Um, he's playing in a in a misfiring Wasp side at the moment, but he's making a huge impact there, keeping them in games uh, with that uh, that ability to get over the ball. So, if I was looking at a at a six, he's really a six stroke seven, but he's six three, so uh, he offers a line out option as well, and. Um, I would definitely uh, be looking looking at him as a six, him six, Curry seven, a, six. A, yeah, yeah, and sort of remodeled Kamikaze Brothers type. <clears throat> yes, yes, to a degree. I'm interested in 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 Don Brand. I don't think that he's been given enough of a run, and I'd be interested in what Wince thinks from your own experience uh, in that uh, double Grand Slam winning back row. There was a lot of of consistency within the back row selection, you know, yourself, Mike Teague and Dean Richards. Uh, how important is it, even in today's game, for that back row to be operating as a unit and to know each other very well? Uh, I think it's crucial. Um, you know, there's got to, always got to be pressure on players to perform and, and to, to understand that, you know, that somebody is chomping at their heels to try and get their place. I mean that's the, that's vitally important, but at the same time, the understanding that you you build up over you know a number of games, a number of years maybe, um, with the people that you're playing with, and the trust that you have in them, 
and that trust has obviously got to be earned. I mean, that's massive. When it comes to sort of high pressure situations, and uh, you know, you need to be with people that you you know you you're confident will do the job. And if you are constantly playing with people who you know different players and different combinations, you know, ultimately it won't work. We've obviously got summer tests coming up. And the summer squad got released a, a week ago. Brendan, what are your thoughts on the summer squad? It's been quite widely praised, actually, which has not not been the theme of the past couple of years in terms of selection. Well, I mean, he's got a, a license to have a have another look, another final look, hasn't he? Really, um, a lot of this should have been going on eighteen months, two years ago. So, yeah, he's going to take an interesting squad down there. Uh, I'm glad to see that my man, uh, Henry Arundel, who yeah. either of you had heard about two months ago when I floated his name past you as England's starting wing for the next World Cup, uh, he's going to be interesting. Uh, he's mustard, he's skillful, he's incredibly quick. But, of course, it's Test Rugby. Hopefully he'll get a lot of action. Uh, he'll be used properly. No point taking him unless they're going to play him, uh, as far as I'm concerned. This is not a case of bedding him into the England squad, etc., etc. This is a guy who could be world-class, so they need to go straight at it. Another guy, actually another London Irish guy I'm interested in, and it kind of links into the discussion in the back row, is Tom Pearson, who I rate immensely highly. It's not the finished article quite, but I get the same feeling about him as I did about Don Brandt about three years ago. There's a huge talent there, and he fits my idea of a number six. See, England had the, the kamikaze kids just 2019, and it worked brilliantly until the final. And I think it was a bit of a, a dummy, really, because I'm not sure that that is, is the way forward in Test Rugby with the two out-and-out sevens um, in the back row. And we keep on trying to slot that in. Jack Willis, he obviously could, you know, he's a sort of seven as well. Tom Pearson's an out-and-out six. He's a modern-day Mike T, you know. He's strong, tough boy, but with good skills. And I think... That is the sort of six England need to be looking at. And I just don't know whether he's going to get a chance on, on this tour. I think he's in the squad, but whether uh, Eddie sees him as a starter or even on the bench, I'm not sure yet. And if we we're talking about the summer test, I want to focus on the back row still. Who would we like to see given a go? Obviously, no Sam Simmons, so hopefully Don Brandt will get more game time. Alfie Barbary, does he come into the equation at all? Not for me, not at the moment. Um, I think that he's experienced a little bit of second season syndrome. I'm still sort of not totally convinced about the move from hooker to eight. He's obviously got phenomenal low gravity driving power and uh, is a threat. He's made the move to the back row, but it's obviously a pretty congested area. I mean, Billy Vonapola has actually been playing better uh, probably than he has for some time. So uh, I don't I don't know whether we'll, we'll get a shock when they actually actual Australia tour party is is named and that he's parachuted in to uh, compete with Don Brandt. Um, Sam Simmons, obviously, out with injury. England may be a little bit thinner, date. Peter, any rebuttal to that? No, not at all, no. I mean, I think, you know, <clears throat> interesting one, uh, Brendan, talking about Tom Pearson. I mean, it, it's, it's getting that combination of, of so the players complement each other. You know, I mean, you know, Curry's an all-round, you know, very, very good seven. Don Brandt is 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 a, a skillful eight, not not a particularly tight player. You need the sort of Mike Teague type blindside who does the, the dirty work. Um, you know, is tough, is uncompromising, carries hard. If that's the case, then they'll they'll complement each other well. Now, Peter, I want to focus on you and what you're doing at the moment. Uh, primarily, your work with Isha. So you came in in 2019. And that season was, am I right in saying it was cut short? It must have been. Yeah, it was. Yes, I finished in in March, didn't it? Um, Yeah. And you guys wound up in eighth? Eighth, I think we were, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And two years later, you're Nat 2 South champions. You're on your way to Nat 1. Describe that transition. What have have been the sort of hallmarks of going from an eighth place finish to a first place finish within two seasons? Well, I mean, when they were relegated from Div 1, you know, we, we, we had a lot of changes, a lot of players left, which was, in my view, was absolutely fine. And we, we had to rebuild. So we, we looked at uh, getting young guys, guys coming out of university, guys who weren't particularly, I mean, we had, you know, our, our captain now came from um, uh, Weybridge Randalls. So we, we sort of decided to, to um, 
to start from scratch. And um, we were very lucky this season that we picked up a few you know, quality players. We have a guy called Sam Morley at 10, who's um, top class um, fly half. Yeah, so we we managed to, to attract some some good players. Um, but yeah, we've, we've, and the boys have worked extremely hard this season to, um, to, to get their, their promotion and they've deserved it. And, and realistically, we're probably not being arrogant, but we were probably on our day the best side in the, in the league. So, so it was good. Well, it's good to have that sort of confidence, isn't it? And in that one, you'll be up against Roslyn Park, Cinderford. Yeah. Is the goal to stay up? first season round would you would you take that or is the goal to you know be pushing for mid-table and above no I don't think the goal is to try and stay up because if you try and do that then you probably go down you know we're, we're, we're looking to just uh, make it make it as big an impact as we can in the league I mean I know Coldy went straight through the league last year whether we're capable of doing that is debatable but you know we want to we want to try and improve throughout the season win as many games as possible and and um, yeah obviously stay in the league and do well in the league um, you, you mentioned your number 10, um, was it Sam, who I know you've written about in the rugby paper and, and saying what a quality player he was. So you now have the classic dilemma of the team that comes up. You've got a couple of players of real quality. You're a grassroots team, but you're on the way up. How do you hang on to those players and keep that momentum up the leagues when there will be teams having a look, other bigger clubs having a look at your top players? Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> ultimately there's not a lot you can do if if the player decides that he wants to go and play at a higher level you know i know that morley was touted by two championship clubs last season this time last year mm. and didn't go and i think i think you, you 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 build a you try and build a spirit at the club and a camaraderie that you know the players don't want to go um and they want to build something build something themselves and build build the team itself rather than jump ship and and to, to just play at a higher level. I mean, you know, you know. so in a couple of years, could we get up to the championship? Who, who knows? My next question ties into the overall crux of this episode, which is financial impact on clubs. Now, I want to start with COVID-19. Flashback to March 2020, not that any of us want to. The country shuts down, the club shuts down. As director of rugby, was it panic stations? Uh, well, not really. It was, it was sort of adapting to what the situation we were able to do so actually that that season we you know we obviously finished and we were locked down for, for a couple of months and then we were able to start light training in around sort of july time which which we did and we were training in groups of six but what we felt was that the the important thing was to give the guys keep in touch with the players so you know we we, we had as, as much communication as with as, as the players as possible and that's not just first team it's sort of through the club you know we won run three teams and uh so you know there were third, a lot of the third teamers or were, were, were training with us as well and we just sort of tried it to to keep the just to keep people you know coming down to the club we trained through a lot of the season when we felt we might be able to start playing in november and of course that was then cancelled and then we thought we could play in january so we we, we sort of kept things going but was there not a period presumably for the, say, between lockdown one and three. So that's, that's a one-year period just over of financial hardship where revenue in versus revenue out is no, nowhere near what a club would want to be at a time that really isn't ideal. Yeah, I mean, the, the club managed it pretty well. Um, you know, for, for, through various sources, um, we managed to get through and, and come out the other side. So I, I'm sure that other clubs found it more difficult um, and some may have found it easier. But, it, you know, it was something that, you had to you had to do so yeah it wasn't easy but but we did it now we do see we've seen examples like oral london welsh wakefield who were in the top two leagues have been for the last 25 years and then those financial struggles hit and the clubs disappear <laughs> some people say the rfu doesn't do enough to protect these clubs now obviously prevention is better than cure so how how do we stop this happening going forward at a time where stats would suggest that fewer people are playing rugby nowadays and as a result you're going to see clubs who encounter these problems and do end up going down the leagues the opposite direction of someone like Caldy. well yeah i mean and i don't believe that you should stop a club you know being ambitious and and paying their players and paying their coaches i don't think you can stop that i think you know and, and if a club 
stretches themselves too far and 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 what they're doing is not sustainable then you know that's their fault i do think that you know there is a problem in the game at the moment where basically over player participation and it's not necessarily in the sort of top end uh, or, or sort of level sort of four or five of the game it's it's lower down you know just players clubs are finding it very difficult to get teams out on a saturday it's it's a problem the rugby union haven't been able to to, to deal with and haven't dealt with over the last sort of 20 20 30 years but it's now getting to the position a, a, a position i feel that something has to be done something positive has to be done um or else the, the sort of third and fourth teams well even second and third first teams are gonna are gonna fade away and um uh, it's uh it's a real problem yeah and i thought you'd say something like that and i read a quote in the guardian that said recreational players are an endangered species which i think we're heading more and more in that direction at the moment well yeah you've got to think about the, the you know what is the game what is the game for what you know the, the governance of the game is is to do what is it to to win a world cup or is it to grow the game and you know the game has probably grown over the last sort of 20 20 odd years through kids through junior rugby mini rugby and yeah. and, and now obviously women's rugby so that's the growth that people say well the game's growing because of this well uh, ultimately the, the the adult male game is shrinking um and you know somehow that's got to stop something i said to you before we started recording was some people sort of project that 10 years 15 years from now we'll see something like they have in the states with american football in that you have your pro your semi-pro your high college sport you know american football college sport is mad uh, and they fill out stadiums which you, know, you can't exactly say the same for rugby in britain otherwise it'll be limited to touch tag and sevens and maybe that's for safety concerns does this model seem viable does it speak to you do you think it's likely i'm not sure it's likely but it's certainly not the way the game should go absolutely not no for a hundred and god knows how many years 150 years it's been you know it's been a player's game it's been yeah. for, the, for the players um you know over the last sort of 20 years it's become more for you know tv and spectators uh, certainly at the top level but you know ultimately it should still be a, a game for for, for players uh, of all of all abilities and sizes, shapes for everybody. I don't know why people would would say that the game has to go like an, a, a, an American sport because obviously you know the biggest game in the world, football, is not like that. Um, so, football in, in in England, you have it's the biggest, well, probably one of the biggest football leagues in the in the world, and you know England as uh, rugby is one of the biggest leagues in the world in in rugby. Well, it, it is until now they've ring fenced the Premiership. It sort of changed things a little bit, and, and suddenly it isn't. The RFU's mission, its whole purpose, is to keep the game thriving. And it has always been a participation sport in this country. And when you look at the American model, what you're talking about is the difference between participation sport and basically couch potato sport. So what you've got in the States is a tiny, tiny percentage of people who have played the game, which ends at high school for virtually all American kids. You've got a tiny percentage who go on to play the college sport and an even tinier percentage who go to, on to play uh, the pro game, the NFL pro game. So the models are completely different. One is totally a money model. The other one is about a sport which benefits society. And that, you know, participation sport is, is definitely, in rugby's sense, under threat. And the RFU does not seem to have got the message. And one of the clearest instances for me is, is that in state schools, sport is, you know, is not at the top of uh, the agenda for many, many uh, state schools. In Australia, Aussie rules has managed to sort of spread itself massively by going into schools and taking in a model, which means that they provide the upkeep for the pitches, they take in the coaches, they'll even organise the leagues and, and so on. And where, in, where are initiatives like that from the RFU? What have they done in state schools, which are still, you know, 93% of the population attend? Yeah. 
It doesn't make any sense to me at all. Can I just back up that totally? Well, Nick said I've spent quite a lot of my life doing reports on schools, rugby and stuff. It is an absolute disgrace. And it's the fundamental um, cause of the problem here. There are other problems. I think the health issues about concussion, head injuries, is beginning to gnaw away at parents. And that's yeah. not good. But the issue is state schools. And I, I wrote it a few months ago. If Jeff Bezos of Amazon suddenly donated £100 million to the RFU, I'd give every single penny of that to getting rugby going again in the state schools. That's where it's disappeared. That was the great um, arsenal of English rugby, of actually British rugby, Welsh schools as well. And it's gone. The state schools have just gone. The great grammar schools has just gone. And where are all those athletes? Where are all those players? What are they doing? Where are they? What's happened to them? Well, a lot of them are trying to earn £100,000 a week as a footballer. A lot of them are doing other sports basketball participation they found other participation sports where they don't make money they're not trying to make money they just want to go and play a bit of basketball twice a week or whatever hockey do other things so it's an absolute fundamental to get that re-energized again and they are a few what have they done well they, they sacked a load of ydos a few years back they've actually withdrawn totally from that system and they say well we've got the academies uh, which creams off the top of the, the public schools, which feeds the premiership. So it looks like schools are still providing the, the raw material for the elite game. Well, to a certain extent, they are, you know, but they, they, they always did, except 50% of them used to come from grammar schools. But below that, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. Except, here's the other mystery. You've got all the mini rugby, which they use all the figures for mini rugby to give the impression that rugby is still an incredibly participation game. Um, and you have like two, three hundred kids at the clubs on a Sunday morning. But where do they go? If clubs are not uh, uh, struggling to put out second, third and fourth 15s at senior level, what's happened to all these mini rugby players who've come up through the club and part of that community? So it's absolutely fundamental. The RFU have got to get into this and start coming up with strategy to correct this. State schools is a bigger problem than safety, is what you're saying. Because obviously the, 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 the outside perspective is, okay, people are worried about concussions, permanent brain damage, which you know is now coming to light more than ever. And so people think, all right, well, football is better supported, better funded, better participation level. People just go down that route. But you think state schools is the number one. It's absolutely the number one. And, and I'm not downplaying the health issues, which are very real and have been sat upon a little bit, but actually they were always there and the, and the game sort of absorbed them. But um, if you haven't got the numbers coming through, the opportunity of the 93%, as Nick was saying, of kids educated in this country go to state school and almost none of them have got a rugby programme. Yeah. You know, and in fact, very few have got a, a, a sort of what I call viable sports program. So, you know, this this was a de debate from 20, 30 years ago. I feel like we're sort of on a groundhog day here in terms of sport and rugby. But it's, it's absolute fundamental to, to the playing figures and the health of English rugby. Yeah. Well, just to put some perspective on the stats. So as we keep saying, 7% of the general population in the UK is privately educated. Now, over half of the players in the Six Nations squad for this year were privately educated. And we're speaking about representation. You want the playing cohorts to represent what the country is. And so we're way off. It's an well, improvement. I want the best 15 always, but you want the pyramid to be actually fed from all the streams of, of player potential. And yeah, I, I, if, if the best 15 rugby players in England are privately educated, you pick them. I, I, I absolutely... No question about that. But you want the... It's where it, it comes from. Yeah. yeah, it's where it all comes from. Yeah. And, sorry, and go think, on. You know, we, we look at, you know, the participation in the sport. And, you know, we have, at Isha, we have a, a community um, uh, officer who goes around the, the local state schools. He can't put programmes into the state schools, but he can go and introduce them to rugby and try and, try and get them, basically, to come down to the club and play junior, mini and junior rugby. But... You know, it's that when they finish their sort of their, their junior rugby, I mean, we've got, I think, 30 Colts uh, at the club who finished last season. You know, our job is to make sure that as many of those transition, because they not not they won't all go to university, um, that as many as possible transition into the sort of senior senior game. And it's difficult. It's difficult. But, but, you know, I, and I think that's the key for clubs. I think a lot of clubs look at their minute, have great mini sections and great junior sections and then don't get that transition 
from from that senior rugby. You know, it's as if well, if guys aren't going to make sort of first or second team, then they've got no interest. Well, you know, we've got to try and try and make them play for the right reasons and get them interested in playing social rugby. So to flip that round, Winters, what was it 30, 40 years ago that made the rugby enthusiast, but not the great player, want to go to the club on a Saturday and play for the thirds and fourths and be part of that pyramid within the club? What was it that enticed them down the club then that isn't happening now, perhaps? Do you know, I, I really don't know. I mean, no, it's, it's, it's the mystery, isn't it? <laughs> and, and people say nowadays, well, they've got they've got a lot, um, you know, different things to do. You know, well, like what? There was a guy at the club at Isha who, uh, thirty years ago, well, forty years ago, was captain of the thirteenth side. Have <laughs> thirteen sides. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. doesn't happen. Uh, it's um. Staggering, isn't it? Really, that's that is mad. And well, the the issue with this number of teams um, thing, there are several issues with it. One is if a club has one or two teams, the level you're going to be playing at is maybe higher than a lot of you know recreational players want to play at for reasons of maybe their own ability or also their own safety. Then, if a club is trying to put out three or four teams, quite often games will be postponed or games will be cancelled because, you know, you, will, you won't be able to get the players together and people will organise their life around the games. They'll train leading up to it. They'll block out their Saturday afternoon and then the morning of, they'll get a phone call saying, okay, we've got insufficient numbers. Are we saying then that the, that, that problem also stems from way bigger, much bigger picture stuff and that that's just a microcosm of, well, what the actual issue is? Well, this is what needs to be looked into. See, my feeling is if you had much more state school rugby, competitive state school rugby, the chances of those lads at seven and girls now, 17, 18, 19, then go into the local club and fill in those second, third and fourth 15s would be much greater. But that sort of migration of players from school to clubs just doesn't seem to be happening anymore. One, because the schools aren't playing much rugby at all and possibly... Possibly there are other things to do, but like Winters, I'm not utterly convinced they're doing other stuff on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, or is something we're all missing? And if, we, if we're missing it, we've been missing it for 20, 30 years because it's just a steady decline. And I can't, it's difficult to get, get your head around exactly what's going on with these people. I mean, one, yeah, of, yeah. one of the things about rugby is that they've always been, you know, rugby clubs have always been fantastic community hubs. And, you know, that's something that's missing a lot in mm. a lot of towns in this country, a lot of cities in this country. So, you know, that, that idea of the camaraderie, of the social network, of the, of the belonging is, is huge. And I don't think that it's being tapped into at the moment. And we can talk about social media and the impact that it has on young lives and so on and so forth. Well, it's got to be counteracted. And, and one of the ways you do that is by building community and rugby clubs have always been an absolutely intrinsic part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just a matter of interest, Wins. How many you talked about the the chap who uh, was captain of the thirteenth, fifteen? <laughs> how many senior adult male teams are you running now? Yeah, three. Um, we have two sort of serious teams. The, the, the third team is obviously a few guys who would play normally would play second team who drop down um and then there's a few guys playing that who train once a week or don't train at all what i what what i want to do is to try and uh, introduce a, a fourth team which is a sort of social a social fourth team um not even necessarily to play in the leagues but to to get games every every now and then the the, the people's firsts would be the fourth team yeah yeah exactly yeah. you know it's it's just um it's giving some giving people an opportunity to sort of just to just play. Yeah, exactly. We have a vet side and we have, we have a walking rugby team and yeah. Would you say you're stretched at the moment by three teams or would, as in, are you absolutely maxed out there? That's the most that the club is capable of in um, terms of participation. Yeah, I mean, it's just getting the number of players on a regular basis. I mean, for example, the first team last year, we played 45 players. The third team played 67, you know, and they had about 20 games. So there's a hell of a lot of people you need to play, you know, to have a team. So my thinking is, well, if we have a fourth team, you know, it's just building your player base. So you've actually got enough players to fill three teams, let alone four. We're going to come back to it because I think it really is a really important issue and I don't want to, you know, stop the train while it's still moving. But 
I want to do your random rugby 15 now, Peter, if that's okay. 15 quick fire questions. Say as much or as little as you like. Yeah, when you're ready, we'll get going. Okay. Let's Nickname. Go. Uh, Strawman. Well, there's a couple of nicknames, but Strawman is the sort of the first one. And and hair and... Yeah, that was because of the hair. Yeah. Best rugby memory. Um, without doubt, uh, it was my um, first first cap for England against Australia in 1982. And playing the game was not the most memorable part. It was when Erica Rowe ran on the pitch. <laughs> and you don't forget things like that. Most embarrassing rugby memory. Um, I think uh, losing um, against Spain in the inaugural Sydney Sevens in 1986. Um, we went down with a sort of ramshackle England side, went down... Um, the day after we'd uh, played uh, France, I think, and we were a disgrace. Pre-game tune. Well, it's fine. I mean, what is a pre-game? Is it is it the, just before the game? I suppose it's the, the national anthem, isn't it? <laughs> no, that that doesn't. That's a complete cop out. <laughs> um, well, you know, I mean, anything by the Who or AD AD ADDC. <laughs> national, <laughs> national anthem. Oh dear. Post-game meal. Post-game meal, um, God, anything, any any sort of gut luggage. Best player you've played against? Do you know, I, I've always said, I mean, there's so many players, good players I've played against, I, I, but I always go back to um, a guy, a South African centre called Danny Ferber, who was, uh, you know, on his day, was just unbelievable, unstoppable. He, he was without, without well, there have been so many, but he was right up there. Best player you've played with? Well, yeah, I, I mean, again, there's so many good players, and I, you know, I don't want to piss uh, too many of them off by not naming them. But I will, I will go Mike Teague because he's a big, big mate of mine, and uh, he was pretty good. Favorite player right now? I would say probably Sam Morley, the Asia ten. But realistically, I probably got to go for Marcus Smith, the England ten, because I think. Uh, yeah. I think he, he, in 10 years' time, he'll be an absolute legend of the game and up there with Gareth Edwards. and, and uh, Wow. Teams. Big claim. Let's hope so. Rugby idol. Do you know, I, I probably have to go back to when I was a little kiddie and my dad said the best player in the world is a guy called Colin Meads. Now, most people know, won't, won't know who Colin Meads is, but he was a legend of uh, New Zealand rugby. I mean, Sir Colin Meads. I mean, I think he died a few few years ago, though. Um, and luckily, I was lucky enough to meet him um, uh, in New Zealand. And uh, I said to Colin, I, 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 you know, you're my childhood hero as a rugby player. And he was late in a barn and he told me to off. In and out, never meet your heroes. Oh, no, <laughs> Favourite stadium? Well, I enjoyed playing at Twickenham, but realistically, my best stadium was Park de Prince. It was like uh, like a, a bull ring, that place. You know, you, you, it was, uh, you, you felt like you were... It was just so intimidating. Favourite gym exercise? Now, I think you'd better move on to the next question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one. <laughs> Occupation if rugby didn't exist. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I played in the amateur era, so I always had a job. I was started off as a farmer, ended up as a a eurobond broker uh, for twenty odd years, and um, so I guess being a eurobond broker, yeah, counting numbers and yeah, nice and easy, telling what I was doing but getting paid for it. Superstitions. I, I guess I always put my left boot on first. Okay, nice rugby rule. You would change. I think. I think one rule I would I would certainly introduce would be. You know, when there's a bit of a kerfuffle and two sort of six foot six, six foot seven boys start pushing each other, I think uh, really it's embarrassing, isn't it? I think we should just have, say, yeah, each player has one punch. We should be allowed to do that. Um, and then, you know, that's, then at least we'd see some action. The, the law that I would change would be tactical substitutions. I'd just get rid of them. I don't see the need for them. I, I think yeah. yeah, injury substitution is absolutely fine, but but why would you bring on you know five forwards in the, the last twenty minutes of the game when um, the, the opposition are knackered? I mean, it's seems yeah, we've had we, yeah we've had that one quite a lot. And just with the one punch, how do you decide which player goes first? Because surely there's an advantage for whoever goes first. I think you probably just have a you know the referee just drop <laughs> his hand and then they go for it. But they're only allowed to punch one yeah, style, so. uh, kung fu style. It could be quite interesting. Yeah. (laughs) 
best thing about working in rugby? It's just fun. It's just great. It's fun. No, nice. Okay. It's a challenge. It's um, it's a real challenge. Um, you know, coaching and managing. It's a completely different thing than playing, and uh, but it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, thank you for doing that, Peter. Let's get back to the topic of the grassroots game. Now, one thing I wanted to get on to is the fact that we keep talking about this decline that rugby seems to be on at the moment. And it, it feels like a slippery slope and it may, may indeed be an exponential decline because, Brendan, as you were saying, the sort of the roots of where everything comes from, this pyramid we're talking about, the broader the base, the higher the pyramid will go. And yeah, so we're going yeah. to get to a stage where if we speak about England, for example, you know, some people estimate that pre-pandemic, just pre-pandemic, playing figures were half of what they were five, five years ago. Now, if that's a base half the size, the top of the pyramid is going to be nowhere near as high. Right. What that means is then you have an England team that underperforms. You don't have the same role models. You don't have the same you know, celebrity status that the likes of Johnny Wilkinson may have had. How do we stop that? Are we starting at the base of the pyramid or do you think there is still a way to create the same celebrity status that someone like Maru Itoje has established for himself over the past few years without that strong foundation? Well, it's such a difficult subject. Uh, and I think, going back to what I said earlier, I think the, the absolute solution is you have to get back into the state schools and get that numbers up. But it's not... The only way of looking at it, I'm struck very much. We've got this salary cap argument at the moment. Five million pound plus one marquee player. Now, five million pound is what an average premiership footballer earns, hundred thousand pound a week. He might not even be starting in the team. So the thing about celebrity footballers or celebrity sportsmen, I, I dislike them in one way, but if you're a young lad deciding what sporting route to take. If a 19-year-old at Man City is earning £150,000 a week and is a superstar and is a celebrity, all your attention goes to that. And rugby hasn't got the super... English rugby, anyway, doesn't seem to have these superstar celebrities. And that's why I'm all in favour of people like Marcus Smith, who are just a bit different. Mark Maro Toji have got a little bit of gravitas about them or, or buzz about them and, be, and can break through and become celebrities, and I would like to think big earners. But rugby so constricts itself, um, and you know, there are loads of good reasons for the salary cap, but you know, we're, we're 30 years into professionalism now. We ought to have a sport where, bang, you can have big sort of exploding clubs that become really big, financially viable, and you have two or three or four big stars and get big wedge, big money. And that filters down. You know, that filters down to the pyramid and you get more and more kids thinking, no, this is sexy. This is really good. This is really profitable. Lots of money here. And there's, no, there's none of that at the moment. It's sort of drawing in on itself, rugby. It's interesting. I, I sort of think it's it's cart before horse in some ways because you talk about um, celebrity status and so on and the Itojis and maybe Marcus Smith, but it's a team sport and it's team success. If you look back to England and 2003, the, the Grand Slam teams that Peter was a part of, it is about that team success pushes the, the individuals through. You know, they're the, they, they become the, the, you know, the poster boys, the Wilkinsons or, and, and Johnsons and so on. So I, I sort of see it in terms of one of the things that England have got, you, you know, really, they need success. You know, the game here needs success. And it's been needing it for some time now. Eddie Jones was, you know, was uh, was hopefully going to be the uh, you know the motor for that success. And initially, it it looked extremely good, um, but it, it's sort of come off the rails to uh, a significant degree. And we're 16 months away from a World Cup. We've got a neighbour across the water where the game seems to be going ballistic. They've got a fantastic league structure. Their national team has just won a Grand Slam. They about you know three years ago they were four years ago they were a basket case. So it's happened very very quickly at the top level, and you know that that has got to be one of the focuses for the uh, for the RFU. And in a way, you know what what we're doing is we're muddling through. So you know I'll throw that out there. You know that 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 actually England's success and the success of the sport in England are very strongly linked. 
they're not the only things, you know. I mean, obviously, this thing about parents worried about their kids playing what has become a massive collision sport. Wince has talked about the fact that get rid of tactical substitutions. A lot of us have been arguing for this for a long time and turn it back into more of an aerobic sport, more of a skill sport. John Dawes talking about it being an evasion sport when, when he played. Now it's Bosch, you know, and if you've got flatline defences, if you borrow from rugby league in the way in which we have, I think that the collision element and that the concussive element in it is obviously going to grow, and it has. And what do we think? Fr- well, I don't know anything about the France grassroots game and how the government is contributing to that. Does anyone know about what they may be doing so well at that base? Well, the main contribution they make is the stadium. All the stadia are state-run. You know, and so a Pro D two team would not have. They they will basically rent the lo- the local um, collective there. That's their stadium. So they've got fantastic facilities. They've got as good a facilities in Pro D two as they have as we have in the Premiership. But it's, it's not a, a capital expenditure for those clubs. That is the really big thing. Also, even down to Federal One. I think it's one of the big things, and that is to do with French culture and so on. And, you know, the fact that they've got a land area twice ours and that the, you know, the municipality is a, is a huge thing in France. But uh, I think that the, if you want to look at how you organise your sport, what you, what you do uh, to energise your sport... You have promotion and relegation. You've got it all the way down the leagues there. If they tried to ban promotion and relegation in the top 14, there'd be a French Revolution, a second one. And, and what, what's happened here over the last 18 months with this moratorium on promotion and relegation, I think it's a disaster for the school. 2023, 2024, it's coming back. Who knows? I think I'm right in saying, or it's pretty, <laughs> yeah, projected to. Oh, it is difficult. Okay. And you know, Sorry, from my on, point of view, I, I totally agree with what uh, the guys say about French rugby. It is community based, um, but I think I think one of the problems in England is um, if you went to um, you know some of the junior clubs at sort of level eight, nine, ten. You know, if you went to them and said, um, "Okay, how do you what, what's your recruitment policy? Where do you get your players from?" They'll probably just say, "Well, they just turn up." You know, is there a, is there a, a, a sort of positive plan on? on where you're going to get your players from, what sort of players you're going to get. You know, do they go into the local schools? Do the clubs go into the local schools and say, look, just, you know, this is a rugby club. This is what we can offer you, you know, um, uh, a great social time uh, and sort of network of people that can help you in, in life. Do they do that? Probably not. And that's where a lot of the massive drop-off is. I mean, you know, we talk about, yes, it'd be great if there was more rugby in state schools, but there's still a lot of kids by rugby. And the vast, vast majority, 90 odd percent of them, don't play after they're 18, 19, 20. They stop. And that's, that's, that, that's a real problem. Do you think rugby is held back by its roots? William Webb, Webb Ellis at rugby school, a private school, picked up a football, started running about. And from then on, it sort of became a game for the wealthy middle classes. And just the image creates a general reluctance as well for those who know about it and who want to play, given that it hasn't really shed that reputation in a way that, you know, football doesn't have that reputation. Two players in England's 2018 Football World Cup squad were privately educated. That's it. And state schools adopt it. Everyone wants to play. How far back do we need to look with rugby to think, OK, there's a reason that it's considered the way it's considered now? I think, I, I think it's a bit, of a, a bit of a myth. I think that you've had guys coming through in rugby from all sectors of society for a long time. It's obviously been a sport in which the public schools considered it to be an important sport in terms of morale and team building and so on and so forth. But I, I, I think that it's something that rugby needs to get away from. And one of the issues is, for example, if you look at, um, I think the current, I'd be right in the current England team, there's all this talk about how many public school boys there still are in it. Most of, or certainly a lot of them, have had scholarships out of state schools into yeah. public schools. So it's it, it's a it's a pretty uh, mish, it's a mishmash of a picture in many ways, and I think that this idea of the sport not being accessible, I can't think of any rugby clubs that don't open their doors to anybody. So I don't think that there is um, there may be a perception. You know, you hear it said many times that it's still got this perception of it being a public public school tough sport and so on and so forth. But I, I don't see that you know that profile 
being a true reflection of the sport at all. And it certainly isn't a reflection of the sport in Wales, uh, you know, quite the opposite. So, and it isn't, that isn't the perception in the West Country either, you know. So I, I, I have a, uh, which, is what, which is probably the hotbed of the sport in the country at the moment. But I also think that it's something that rugby actively needs to do, which is to encourage participation from everybody all sectors of society and i think that 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 you know to be fair i think that that has happened to uh, to a degree but i you know we've talked about the, the the sort of the black hole if you like in state sport and state school sport and i think that that is is an issue peter brendan any other thoughts on that particular issue and just in terms of perception i mean it's exactly right it is a mismatch picture in terms of you do get these scholarships up but, but almost like the front of house sometimes for rugby is this RFU, the committees, the politics, the arguments, the intransigence. And, and, and they could they not just shake that up a bit? Could they not just be more streamlined, more user-friendly, to use a, another word? We used to, I remember, we used to have really good monthly, sometimes fortnightly briefings with the RFU. And we used to be let in on what was happening. And now it feels like the media's held at bay um, not really encouraged in any way. They, they've really got to shake themselves up and get into the 21st century. I don't want to use the old fartism, really, but they're, they're still lagging behind in the way that the public perceives them. Forget the game for a minute, just the governing body. Yeah, but uh, Brennan, but that, that comes down to, the, you know, do, how do they govern the game or do they govern the game? And, and, and if they sort of perceive that they do, do they do a good job? And I'd say the answer is no. Yeah. don't govern the game um, as well by any stretch as well as they should do. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have, be having a lot of this discussion. Yeah, there's been a lot of decades of very mediocre governance and sometimes absolute failure of governance for our view. And you know, it's just expressions, but actually it seeps through the public perception of the game of not being you know, on point and sharp and really 21st century. It's funny, we look at the men's game versus the women's game and they do seem to be going in slight opposite directions at the moment in the UK. Obviously, the women's game being the Red Roses are practically unbeatable. They are certainly providing role models for younger players. To, mm-hmm. you know, they've, they've started in a very progressive, very inclusive way. You've got players like Shauna Brown who go to state schools, introduce rugby there. Absolutely phenomenal things that the women's game is doing. Do we think that this sort of inverse pathway is just representative of the times and as women's rugby starts up it's always going to have that bit of traction or do we think there's a thing or two that the men's game could actually learn from the women's game well yeah i mean i i would say that yes that it, it, it's great that the women's game is, is growing but it's growing from a sort of effectively quite a low base and you know and the growth of the of the, of the women's game you know will just get bigger and bigger i mean you know we'd love to have a, a women's team at alicia but it's one of the things that somebody's got to organise it, and you know we need we need some volunteers to come in and, and take up the mantle. But yeah, it'd be great to have a women's team, and there's going to be more and more. So you know, good on them. I, I think that there are that there are things that uh, the men's game can definitely uh, learn from the women's game. But I do I do think that at the moment, field in terms, I mean, they've got a successful they've got a successful national team that yeah. is worth its weight in gold. I, I do think that there is a bit of a, a, a sort of uh, there are issues that the women's game has. Obviously, uh, England are successful at the moment, and you would say that that's because they've been proactive in building, you know, in building the women's game. But I do think that at the moment there are probably only three other uh, teams in the world that are funded to anywhere near the same degree. And that funding does make a difference because it's amateurs playing against pros. And um, I also think that there's a huge amount of optimism about their ability to win the World Cup in New Zealand. And all I would say is that New Zealand will do everything in their power to make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> but hopefully they, they, they push through and, and win it. Brendan, any final thoughts? Because we'll wrap up after this. I think it's absolutely right that they, they're taking their own pathway, actually. And it's good that they're getting the Six Nations away from the men Six Nations. Uh, no longer that, that image of playing on the Friday night or before a men's match or even after a men's match in front of empty Twickenham. 
they're going their own way. They're organising their own tournaments, their own identity. Like Nick, I think they will, you know, there's going to be some hurdles on the way now. We've had this great explosion the last three or four years based around England, professional team. Brilliant. And a World Cup win down in New Zealand would again add a bit more impetus to that. Um, so all power to the women. They're doing a great job. Stay away from mimicking the men's game. Go your own route. Uh, and let's see where it goes. I mean, it is the one absolutely, um, well, success story, I suppose, in English rugby. Like the major success story in England rugby. They are covering themselves in glory and you know, attracting a lot of publicity. They're on their own path. And the, the men's team are certainly not on their own path in the same way right now, are they? So I suppose that's maybe the number one thing that the mm. men's team could learn. I don't know. Maybe post-2023, there'll be something of a rebrand. And hopefully the more, <clears throat> the more this is spoken about and the more th- conversations like this are published, the more somehow the RFU will take notice and realise that state schools particularly, not enough is being done. We'll wrap up there. Uh, yeah, a fascinating discussion and something that is very, very applicable to now and very immediate action needs to be taken. Obviously, if England men somehow go and win the World Cup in 2023, that would <laughs> that, that, that would fix some of the issues. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're a betting man, you're not putting money on that right now, are you? Peter, I presume you're in the off-season now, wrapped up training. When does training restart in terms of pre-season for next season? Oh, beginning of July. I think July 12th, we start pre-season. But the week before that, we, we do fitness testing. Oh, do, <laughs> nice. <laughs> What's ETRA fitness testing like? Uh, it'll be actually it's, a, it's just a way of getting the guys down and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we'll put them through their paces and um, see if they've done anything in, in, over the, the off season which I, I think um, by all accounts most of them are good luck in that one I look I look forward to seeing how you should do yeah thanks so much for joining us cheers thanks very much cheers Rangers as always the rugby paper is available in stores on Sundays or through a digital subscription you can have it delivered straight to you we will see you next week for episode 18 